Would you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 1? And I'm going to ask Grant Van Cleve, would you come up and read the word for us? Revelations 4, 1. So yeah, once you get to Revelations, turn to the fourth chapter. We're going to read a long one, all of chapter 4 and chapter 5. You can follow along or you can just close your eyes and listen. This is a sneak peek at worship going on in heaven. Chapter 4, verse 1. The throne in heaven. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. And surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and they were, these were the sevenfold spirits of God. And before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. And in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second was like an ox, and the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of these four living creatures had six wings that were also covered with eyes all around them, even under their wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll and even look inside it. So I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scrolls or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. He was encircled by four living creatures and the elders, and he had seven horns and seven eyes, which again were the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. He came back and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures 
and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels, thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and the sea and all that's in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Good morning. It's going to be hard to follow that one up with anything worthy of that passage. But as you heard from Joel this summer, we are talking about God's invitation into this rich inner life, this deep life-giving relationship with him. He says, come to me. I want to enter into a relationship with you that is life-giving and refreshing And we're looking specifically at what are the practices and rhythms and habits and disciplines that we can engage in that help to cultivate this kind of life with God. So far, we've looked at the reading of scripture. Uh, We've looked at prayer. Most recently, we looked at Sabbath. And now, we're going to spend two weeks looking at worship. And of course, worship is a... uh, is not just what we do when we gather here, right? Worship is a 24-7 response to who God is that we can worship in church, we can worship at work, and we can worship in the home. But what I want to focus on is specifically this gathering. We, when we come together weekly to gather, to worship, to sing, to hear from God's word, to hear from one another, to pray, that's the worship context that I want to talk about, this weekly rhythm and how this can help us cultivate that kind of life with God. Two weeks on worship. Again, as we've done with all of these, the first week will be, today will be big picture on what worship is, and then next week we'll look at some practical implications for, in light of what worship is, what should our Sunday mornings look like, and how can we prepare ourselves and engage in this time in a way that worship is taking place. So we're looking at a passage for many of us that is fairly familiar because I've taught on it regularly, Revelation 4 and 5. I consider this the holy grail of worship. And so I thought it'd be a great place to talk about worship. The scene is uh, the Apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples, now after Jesus died and was raised. Years later, he's an old man. He's in exile on an island in the Mediterranean for his faith in Jesus. And he's given this vision. And and in chapter 4, this door opens, and he gets access, and we just got access, into the throne room in heaven where God is seated on his throne and these angelic creatures are, are around him. And what, in a word, what we're seeing is worship. We're get, given access into this heavenly worship scene. And I think this scene models for us 
what true worship looks like. And being given access into the scene is this invitation that when we gather in worship, we get to, in a sense, join in the heavenly worship that is taking place all the time. So today I want to look at what do we see happening there? How does this model and teach us what our worship together can be like? All right? So before I jump into the passage, I just want to just say one thing about worship uh, and ask you this question uh, Stephen, I've lost control of so many things in my life, uh, but especially there, I'm back. Okay. Uh, I'd just be curious for you to ask yourself, when you see that word worship, how does that resonate or not resonate with you? You know, for some of you, that might feel like a religious word or a, a church word. Uh, it may or may not connect with your daily life. That word may feel kind of, I don't know how that feels for you. But what I want to suggest today is, however that word feels, that, that uh, nothing can be more central to what it means to be a human being than worship, okay? Every one of us was created to worship. In fact, we, we can't help but worship. It's something we do all the time, all right? The word comes from an older English word, which was worth-ship, which is essentially to acknowledge the worth of something, Right? Something is worth something, it's valuable, it's important, it's amazing, it's beautiful, whatever. And worship is acknowledging, experiencing the, the worth of something. Say, so why did that just disappear on me? So strange. Uh, doesn't matter. Um, but we do that all day long. There are things that we find valuable and beautiful and amazing, uh, and we worship them. We Think about them. We delight in them. We give ourselves over to them, whether that object is a beautiful woman or a handsome guy, or uh, a career that promises significance, or a favorite sports team, or a perfectly designed vehicle, or a perfectly designed kitchen, or whatever it might be for us. All day long, we are finding things that our hearts think are worth something, and we delight in them. We give ourselves to them. So the question with worship for every human is never, will I worship or not? The only question is, what will I choose to worship? And of course, our answer to that impacts how we live our lives, and the, it impacts all sorts of things in our lives. So we're going to talk about something that is so natural to us as human beings and ask the question, what does it look like for that thing that's so natural to be put towards the object that is most worthy of praise? So today, I, I want to just ask the question from Revelation 4 or 5, what is worship? What do we learn about what worship is? And I'm going to start in a really uh, uninspiring way uh, with a definition. Uh, I think this is close enough. Worship is essentially declaring and experiencing God's worth, right? That's what worship is, is, is noticing God, you are worth, you're more valuable than anything else. You're more beautiful. You're more awesome. You're more powerful. You're, you're greater. And it's declaring that and, of course, experiencing it. Uh, the key word in, in Revelation, oh, uh, in Revelation four and five, is the word worthy. Okay, take a look at chapter four, verse eleven. Many of you aren't taking a look at chapter four, verse eleven. <laughs> take a look at chapter four, verse eleven. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, uh, get an app on your phone so that every Sunday you can take a look at chapter four, verse eleven. Strongly encourage you to do that. No shame or guilt. That's just encouragement and invitation. Chapter 4, verse 11. You are what? 
worthy, there we go, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. Chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Chapter 5, verse 12. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the Lamb, right? That is, that is the word of worship. You are worthy. You're worth it. You deserve all power and praise and fame and recognition because you really are the most valuable thing. You are worth more than anything else in the creation. You are worthy. And worship is what happens when the worthiness of God actually breaks through into our lives. Because God's always worthy, right? I mean, no matter what I'm doing, God is always worthy. But sometimes I'm not really thinking about it. But every once in a while, something about his worthiness breaks through into my heart or my mind or my life. Maybe it's, I'm reading scripture or I'm hearing a story of God at work or I'm singing him. God's worthiness breaks through. And when that happens, worship happens. You are worthy. Now, I want to expand our definition. Here's where I want to focus our time today. I'm going to talk about three ways that we declare and experience God's worth that we see in this passage. First, we do it in our minds. We contemplate his worth. worth. Uh, We do it in our hearts. We experience and feel his worth. And then finally, we do that with our lives. We give our lives over to him because he is so worthy. All right? So let's trace those three things through our our passage today. So first, worship is is an experience of God's worth in our minds. We contemplate. We consider who God is. We answer questions in our minds about what makes God worthy. Why is he worthy? What is it about God that makes him so worthy? And let me suggest in this passage, there are two things that make God particularly worthy, that really are the foundation of all worship. First is he is worthy because he is the creator. And secondly, he is worthy because he is the savior. Okay? So let's look at this. First, he's worthy because he's the creator. This is what chapter 4 is all about. God as the creator of all things. So let's look at the passage. Uh, In verse 2 of chapter 4... A door is opened in heaven. John gets a vision into heaven. And the first thing he sees there is what? A throne, right? There's a throne in heaven and someone is sitting on it. And the one who's sitting there is God the Father, the creator of all things. And there's this awesome depiction of him. He's, he's like described as the brightness of fine jewels. He's radiating like a, like a rainbow. There's lightning and and. Thunder, it's, it, you almost can't look at the one seated on the throne. It feels kind of uh, Ezekiel-ish, doesn't it, a little bit? And, and his, just the awesomeness of the creator of all things. And then you have these four living creatures that themselves are quite wild and interesting. But they are singing a song. They're right around the throne. And they're singing a song to the one on the throne that begins in verse 8. Look at the first, second half of verse 8. Here's their song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That is a song to the creator of all things, who first off, they're saying, you are threefold holy, really holy, 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 holy. That word, of course, means set apart. They're saying, you know what? You are so set apart from anything else. You are the creator. Everything else is creation. There is 
Everything in creation that kind of is in its own category. And you are in a category all by yourself as the creator. You are uncreated. You never came into existence. You have always been. You are utterly perfect and holy and in a class all by yourself. Holy is the Lord God almighty. You are almighty. You are all powerful. There is nothing you can't do. You're the creator. You can do anything in your creation that you desire to do. There are no limits to what you are able to do. There are no limits to your power. It is utterly unlimited power. You are almighty and you are the one who was and is and is to come. You are the eternal one. There has never been a time where you did not exist. You have always been. You are now. And you always will be. You are eternal. You are everlasting. You were never born. (laughs) You've always been. There's not a time we could go far enough back where you weren't there. You've always been. And then we go another thousand years back and you're still there. And a million years and you're still there. You've never not been. And you will never not be. I used to hurt my brain as a kid trying to figure this out. I can remember laying in bed at night asking these weird questions. Like, why did you wait forever to create the universe? Because you've been around forever, so you waited forever. Why would you wait so long? There's no other way for him to do it than to wait forever. He's always been. Holy, almighty, eternal And then you have these 24 elders that are around the four living creatures, and they have a song that they're singing that you see in verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For, why are you worthy? Here's what we're contemplating in our minds. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You're worthy because everything that exists was created by you. It's everything that exists comes into being because it was your will that it would come to being. Because you thought it up in your mind and then you just spoke it and it took place. And they were created. Not just created, but everything has their being in your will. The reason things continue to exist moment by moment is only because you desire for them to continue to exist. The reason we all continue to exist right now is because in God's will, he desires that we continue to exist. There's fun little like thought experiments you can do on this, but let's do a really easy one. Um, let's all take a breath together. Okay, take a breath in and out. And then we say, thank you, Lord, for that breath. And then we do it again. And thanks for that one, too. (laughs) The reason I had those two breaths is because it was your will that I have those breaths. That your power sustains my body moment by moment so that I continue to breathe. I'm utterly dependent on you for every breath, for every molecule in my body that continues to work the way it should. All things were created by you and have their being in your will, by your desire. So in worship, we come before the creator and we contemplate in our minds who he is, that we stand before a being that is so sacred, so vast, so beyond our comprehension, so in a category all by himself, holy and almighty, 
and eternal, who just speaks and spins out galaxies that are beyond comprehension and who takes care of every minute detail of everything. We worship him as creator. We consider our minds, what kind of unfathomable power and then dependence do I have on this being? That's what we do in worship. And we say in our minds, you're worthy. What could be more worthy than that of my worship? And the great news is that is only the half, that's only half the truth of who our God is. He is not just creator, but that creator is also the God who is our savior. Amen. And that's what chapter 5 is all about. God as savior. So turn to chapter 5. And this, the scene shifts in a, in, a, in a remarkable way. And we get a remarkably different image. Chapter 4, someone on the throne, fire, Lightning, thunder, awesome power. Chapter 5, we're introduced to somebody else in the middle of the throne. Where is it? Verse 6. We're introduced to a lamb. A little lamb, actually, in the Greek. A little, a little lamb, small, looking weak, helpless. And actually, uh, it says, having been slain, slaughtered. This is first century sacrificial imagery. A lamb that has been, that's neck has been slit, okay? But it's still, it's still alive. <laughs> so this completely different picture of this little, weak, helpless creature, a lamb. And the image of the lamb of, is an image of Jesus Christ, God's son that God sent to be savior. And he is described in verse five as this. Don't weep. See the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. Okay. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. That is to say, he is the king. He is the Messiah. He's the one that we've all been waiting for who would come and conquer the enemies of God's people and restore God's people. And Jesus comes and he is the lion, the tribe of Judah, And then the surprise, John expects to see a lion, and instead he sees this little lamb. Who is the lion? (laughs) And Jesus comes as the lion from the tribe of Judah, but he comes, and rather than coming as a conquering lion to destroy and devour evildoers and sinners, he comes as a lamb. He defeats evil by taking evil on himself on the cross. By not destroying sinners, but by taking their sin on himself on the cross. Sacrificing himself for us. Paying the debt that our sins owe. So that we might be forgiven of our sins. So that we might have a relationship with the creator who is on the throne. Amen. And the song to him in verse 9 is this. "To To a lamb. To a little lamb. The same things are said of the lamb as the ones that were the things that were said to the one on the throne. You too are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals to enact God's plan for the world. Why are you worthy? Because you were slain. That's what makes you worthy. You were killed. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. The the all-powerful creator of the universe has become our savior in the person of Jesus Christ in the most unbelievably great plot twist and power reversal of all time. (laughs) That the holy, all-powerful one becomes weak and vulnerable so that through his blood, 
he might purchase a people from every part of the world that, might, that we might become kings and priests to serve our God on the earth. This great act of salvation. And so in worship, we contemplate this act of salvation. What God did for us. How much he must love us to do that. What an amazing sacrifice it was that he would do for us. So in worship, I know I'm taking more time on this point, but it's important. What we're doing is we're considering, we're contemplating who our God is as creator, all-powerful, holy, transcendent, and who our God is as savior, the one who loves us, the one who gives himself, the one who stoops down in order to serve and rescue us, the one who is great, the one who is gracious, (laughs) the one who is infinite, the one who is intimate. This amazing combination that makes up who our God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we say in our minds, in a word, worthy. What else could possibly be worthy of my mind's attention and affections? So that's the first. These next two will go by real fast. Worship is declaring and experiencing God's worth in our minds. Considering who is he? Why is he worthy? Because he's creator and savior. Secondly, I love this one. Not just in our minds, but in our hearts. You know, I don't know how you uh, hear this scene as it was read, but it's pretty clear to me uh, that this is uh, more than an intellectual exercise for these creatures in heaven. Okay? This is more than a thought experiment. <laughs> They're really feeling this. They're in God's presence, and they are, this, the truths of who God is, God is are really resonating deep inside their hearts. A couple things to point out on this. The first is that there's singing going on. They're not just talking, but they're singing. You look at chapter 5, verse 9, after the lamb opens the scroll, it says, and they sang a new song. So they're not just talking, but they're singing And worship doesn't just speak. Worship sings. Worship sings. And it's amazing how many times in the scriptures God invites us and commands us to sing to him. Right? Sing a new song. Even to shout. To play instruments. To clap our hands. To to dance before the Lord. But in this case, I'm thinking of to sing. And I want to ask the question, why does God call us to sing to him? I mean, we could put these song lyrics up every week and we could just read them together, right? Or we could sing them. And there's absolutely no change to the intellectual content whether we sing them or whether we speak them. It doesn't change anything about the meaning of the song. So the question is, if nothing changes about the content, why does God tell us to sing? What is gained from singing? The answer is obvious. Because singing moves our hearts, right? Melody. And rhythm and lyric and song, it moves us in a way. And God is saying, when you gather and worship me, I don't want you just to think about me. I want you to be moved by what you're thinking about me. Amen. Amen. I want you to feel what you're thinking about me. That's the only reason it's there. That's That's the reason that singing is there. And so some of us, I think, we get, we get a little suspicious of, of emotion in worship. And I just want to say, would it, po- would it be possible to feel too much <laughs> about God? Like what you're feeling right now is more than how great God is. You've gone 
across a line, you're now feeling more than how great God is. Right? That, that's not possible. What's possible is when the emotions get attached to the wrong objects. And that, that can happen in worship all the time. So that, that's an issue. But we can never be too moved by who God is. As long as we're being moved by who God is. And that's the invitation. God says, I want you to be moved. That's what's supposed to be happening. These creatures are moved by what they're seeing. The other, the other thing I notice is the, um, is the uh, four living creatures back in chapter 4. The repetition that's going on. If you look at verse 8, remember they're seeing that holy, holy, holy. And right before that it says, day and night, they never stop saying. So apparently they keep saying this again and again and again. And my assumption is they are moved by it. And repetition is another thing. You know, we've all had the experience on a Sunday where uh, some verse or a chorus of a song keeps getting repeated, right? And your experience of the repetition of that song, all of us have had this, it all depends on how much that song is moving you, right? <laughs> if the song is moving you, you're like, yes, I, let's hit that chorus again. If it's not moving, you're like, it is time to move on to the next song, <laughs> right? We've all had that ex- both sides of those experiences, But I'm quite sure that these four living creatures aren't repeating themselves out of a sense of duty or obligation or rote memory. But they're doing that because they're in the unmediated, unfiltered presence of the creator. And they can't help but keep saying, all that we feel is your holiness. And and we could not say enough right now just how holy you are. They're moved. And worship in its ideal form, that's what's happening. We can't say enough. We sing a song sometimes, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. If I had a thousand tongues to, to, to sing to you, that wouldn't be enough. It, 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 there's always an inadequacy to our worship. But we're experiencing you, and we're so moved that all we can do is keep saying this. All that to say, worship is not just experiencing and declaring God, God's greatness and his worth in our, in, our, in our minds, but is actually experiencing it in our hearts. And then finally, in our minds and our hearts, and then with our lives. Worship is a, a giving of our lives over to the worthiness of God. It's offering ourselves to this God who is so worthy. I love the example of the 24 elders Uh, If you go to chapter 4, verse 9, let me read that to you. Verse 9 and 10. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and then they say their song. So I want you to try to picture this. Uh, in verse 4, it tells us there's actually there's 24 thrones around God's throne. So each one of these elders is si- sitting on their own throne. And they have crowns on. Okay, if we saw them, we, they would look like what? Kings. They'd look like kings, right? So I want you to picture these 24 elders. They're on their own thrones. And what they do is they get off of their throne. They are sitting there. They get off the throne. And then they get down on the ground. And they fall down before God's throne. And it's this act of humility, right? It's saying, 
before your throne, we surrender our thrones. You know, any, any authority that we have is nothing compared to your authority. And so we, before you, we get off of our thrones and we get low. We make ourselves low before you. We're nothing. You are everything. Your throne is so much greater than our throne. And then they also, they have these crowns on their heads and they, they take the crowns off and they lay them at the foot of God's throne. And whatever these crowns are, they're, you know, images of, of, of honor and, and maybe even give, who knows, I mean, authority. But they're saying whatever, whatever honor we have, whatever gifts that you've given us, well, they are just that. They're things you gave us. And so we're, we're going to give those right back to you. Because anything we've received is simply a gift for you, from you. So we're, we're offering your gifts and, and whatever you've given us, we're offering it right back to you. And that's what worship is. Worship is this experience of humility and then of, of surrender before God. Where we come and we humble ourselves before him and say, we're, we are nothing, God. You are everything. And we want to offer you. Everything you've given us, everything we've received is, is a gift from you. So we, we offer it right back. So you use it for your purposes, for your glory, for your plans. And really, I think this is, this is where the rubber meets the road in worship. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's one thing to think about how great God is. It's one thing to feel how great God is. But to actually then move towards, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to offer my life to you. So to come in this room each Sunday and, you know, whatever sin is in our lives to, to offer that and say, I, I want to confess this. I want to make myself low before you. Whatever plans that we have for our lives, whatever hopes and dreams to take those and say, God, these are, these are yours. This is what I want, but I offer it back to you for your glory. You do with my life what you want to do. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's the, that's the work of worship. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 12. In view of God's mercy, right? In light of everything that God has done, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is the reasonable act of worship that you give him. And so we come here, and we don't just think and feel, but we commit, we surrender, we offer the details of our lives to him again. Say, you do what you want. We just sang that song, Instrument, right? I, I offer you myself. I'm broken, I'm spent. Whatever I am, I'm offering it back to you. I want to be your instrument. Declaring God's worth, experiencing God's worth in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives. That's why we're here. Amen. Amen. And so I just want to encourage you, we're going to spend some time singing to God, worshiping through song. And I just want to encourage you to ask yourself, is that, is that what's happening for me in this time and place? Is that why I'm here? Am I here to worship? Am I here to find my place around God's throne? To recenter my life, again, around the one around whom everything revolves. To recenter my life around him. To find my place in this worship of the creator and to offer my life to him again. That's what we're here to do. That's first and foremost what Sunday mornings are about. It is about learning. It certainly is about fellowship. But first and foremost, it is about worship. And there's a million ways we get to worship. And so next week we'll talk concretely. How do we approach this time? So this kind of worship, uh, we're entering into that. So let me pray for us and then we will sing. Father, 
this morning, we've already said it, and we'll say it again. You are worthy. You're worthy to receive everything, whatever it is, glory, honor, praise, power, wisdom, strength. You're worthy because no one's like you. As we heard, you are God and there is no other. Everything else that captures our hearts and minds is a far cry from you. They are just cheap, cheap substitutes for the real thing. And so we pray, certainly now in this time, but also every Sunday and even beyond the other six days, that you might give us glimpses of your glory. We need you to initiate with us to recognize your greatness and your mercy and your grace, all the amazing qualities that make up who you are. We need you to reveal those things to us by your spirit. We can't drum those up. So would you reveal yourself to us today and this week in greater, deeper ways that we might be moved to worship in whatever ways are appropriate. We pray these things in Jesus' name and through his blood. Amen.